Dolphins are vocal production learners, which is actually incredibly rare in the animal kingdom. What this means is that they kind of model the sounds they make based on sounds that they're hearing and their environment. So the repertoire of sounds that they're producing can kind of expand throughout their lifetimes or can adapt and change. My name is Laura Palmer. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Bristol in the UK. And I guess I would call myself a cetacean ecologist very broadly, but my interests mostly are in communication. Welcome to another episode of Below the Tide. My name is Liz and I'm your host. This week we are sitting down with Laura Palmer to discuss bottlenose dolphin communication. If this is your first time listening to Below the Tide, welcome. I'm so happy that you're here. The goal is to bring you marine science directly from the scientist. I just want to make marine science accessible and easy to understand. Every episode has resources like photos and videos that you can find on Instagram and Twitter at Below the Tide Pod. And now you can officially find these on the website as well. So BelowTheTide.com launched this week and has everything you need. All right, let's jump right into the episode. Don't forget to grab a coffee and enjoy. I'm really happy that we are sitting down and we're chatting with you today. Can you break down kind of what a cetacean biologist is? Yes. Um, so cetaceans are porpoises, whales and dolphins. Um, so I guess a cetacean ecologist is indeed very broad. Um, and basically, we're kind of interested in the lives of these animals. You could perhaps take different routes and go uh, through a more behavioural side of research, or there's also quite applied questions to do with the management and conservation of these species. Many of them are legally protected in areas of the world, and so countries also have statutory obligations um, to monitor these populations and ensure there's no major welfare issues as well. Is there a specific citation that you focus in on? Yeah, so nowadays my PhD research focuses on bottlenose dolphin communication, my previous work at the University of St Andrews was looking at mostly harbor porpoise behavior. Um, but yeah, now I'm bottlenose dolphins and I have kind of three populations that I'm mostly working on. So primarily Cardigan Bay in Wales, um, but also Shark Bay in Western Australia and the Moray Firth in Scotland. So maybe we can start with like an intro to bottlenose dolphins. I yes. feel like they're like, they're kind of dolphins that we typically see but I mean I've never seen them out in the wild so I'll let you take it away in terms of who they are yeah I guess the very stereotypical image of a dolphin that we see in the media is usually a bottlenose dolphin they're long-lived mammals so they're mammals just like us as humans Um, they live up to around 50 years in the wild give or take depending on the population Um, they reach sexual maturity between about 5 and 15 years Um, And the females usually have a calf every three to four years as well. Um, They're distributed very widely, actually, um, in temperate and tropical waters. So we don't get them in the poles. Um, Their body size and physiology is not made for the really cold waters. Um, But some of the populations I'm studying, for example, in Wales and Scotland, that's kind of the northernmost um, extent of their range, for example. Um, They're highly social animals, so they live in what we call fission fusion societies. This basically means that the group size and composition is dynamic over time. 
Um, and I guess the main thing that I study is their acoustic ecology. So dolphins um, sense their world using sound. Um, they use echolocation, uh, which is a form of biological sonar to help find prey and for navigation. And also they use whistles. Um, I guess <laughs> whistles a bit more self-explanatory, but it's a tonal sound, a bit more like our whistles that they use mostly for socializing and communication. And like a lot of other toothed whales and dolphins, they eat mostly fish. So species like cod, salmon, sand eels, mackerel, that kind of thing in my study area. Cool. And so you're focusing on the communication that they are using, right? Yeah, primarily the whistle side of um, of their acoustic behavior. So I don't look too much into echolocation, although our research kind of does, um, well, when we record the dolphins, we're picking up on that and we can use that to kind of identify areas that are important for foraging for them. Um, so we touch on it in that respect, but mostly I'm studying their whistles and the factors that cause variation in their whistles within and between populations, uh, by which I mean things like anthropogenic noise, so human-made sounds from boats in the marine environment, um, their social structure, how that can influence their vocalizations, and also the environment and their habitat. So what would a dolphin typically use whistles for? To communicate between dolphins? Yeah, exactly. Um, So... They use, they have a type of whistle called a signature whistle, which is an identity signal, a bit like we have a name. So it's a particular whistle that would be unique to one individual. And they kind of broadcast that into the marine environment and it's used to help them find their friends, basically, um, underwater. But as well as the signature whistles, they produce a whole host of other whistles. And the function of those whistles is a lot less clear to us at the moment as researchers. And we're kind of just tapping into this at the moment. But they definitely have a role in socialising and potentially coordinating behaviour and for cooperation. Oh, that's so interesting. And is this something that they would kind of learn from each other? Like, how would a baby dolphin learn how to whistle? Yes. So dolphins are vocal production learners, which is actually incredibly rare in the animal kingdom. Um, I think there's about eight species that are doing it. Um, And what this means is that they kind of model the sounds they make based on sounds that they're hearing in their environment. So the repertoire of sounds that they're producing can kind of expand um, throughout their lifetimes or can adapt and change. Talking about signature whistles specifically, so these identity calls, studies have shown that calves are developing their signature whistle in the first six months to a year of their life. And it's usually not similar to its mother's signature whistle, because as you may imagine, there could be selective advantages to having quite a distinct one from your mother, for example, when you're trying to meet up at sea. If you're producing the exact same sound, that might be less beneficial. But generally, it might be based on kind of loose associates from their social circles. And so their social circle, how big is it typically? It can vary a lot between different populations. I guess 
in Cardigan Bay, where I study mostly, we're still really kind of tapping into this and learning a lot more about it. Certainly when we're in the field, we're encountering groups of up to 40 dolphins at a time, but we don't know how long they're actually staying in those larger groups. It's highly likely that they're breaking off into smaller groups. I think a population which is super interesting for its social structure is the shark bay dolphins that I mentioned. So that's Western Australia. These dolphins are actually very unique in that they probably have the most complex social structure in the animal kingdom outside of humans. So the male dolphins form these multi-level alliances. So kind of the core social unit is known as a second order alliance. This is where four to 14 males cooperate. From within this group, they uh, the males will form pairs or trios that herd females during the mating season. And then to add another layer of complexity to this, there's also third order alliances, which is where multiple second order alliances kind of team up um, to help defend, you know, their their peers against rival alliances. <laughs> so this is wow. a super core, cool, yeah, a very core cool social structure. Um, and the females in this population, incidentally, don't have that kind of social structure. And so... Would a population include multiple pods? Are they moving in pods like, you know, like whales do? So a lot of whales, like the typical example of a killer whale, for example, they live in matrilineal pods. So that's kind of Mm -hmm. where there's like a matriarch mother and some of her offspring will stay with her. The difference being with bottlenose dolphins is that we don't really see these kind of necessarily there's differences between some populations but we don't see these kind of longer term familial groups where they're genetically related it can be um, based on other things so the we would generally say or at least for cardigan bay it's a it's a population and the whole population is basically a pod and then they form groups within that so in theory, every individual could interact with every other individual when they overlap, but we're still learning kind of about social preference in that population and exactly how how much time individuals are spending with each other. Oh, that's so interesting. I feel like, you know, being on here in the North Pacific, I like my perspective is always, you know, killer whales and humpbacks and it's... um it is really interesting to think like they are other cetaceans, but they have a very different dynamic. And would that typically be due to size or is it just like a completely different type? of? Yeah, to be honest, I couldn't give you a a definite answer on that. I mean, I could I could say theories, um, it could be to do with the sizes of populations, um, the resources that they have available, for example, competition and and trying to mitigate inbreeding, for example. Um, but yeah, to be honest, I'm really not sure about that. And what kind of competition do they typically have in your in your research uh, environments? Yeah, so in Cardigan Bay in particular, um, these animals are top predators. So it's not like they're kind of worried about being hunted, but there are the marine mammals there that also are eating some of the same prey items as them so there's also gray seals and harbor porpoises and there's actually really interesting behavior which is observed um, around the UK and maybe in other places um, which is kind of informally known as porpoise bashing Um, and this is where 
the bottlenose dolphins, which typically have a very like friendly, smiley image, are kind of just physically ramming porpoises to the point of death. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's pretty grim. It's quite rare to observe it. But what we do get is quite a lot of strandings where there's evidence that this has occurred. But I guess we don't know if that's directly because of competition or whether that's actually just dolphins having a bit of fun. <laughs> I'm not sure. So there could be competition in Cardigan Bay, but then the population is doing well overall, we think. So yeah, it's it's not not necessarily a massive factor in their behavioral ecology. If we kind of zoom into you a little bit, do you want to kind of give us a little bit of a storyline of how you got to where you are and what kind of pulled you into this field? Yeah, definitely. So I guess, like a lot of people in the field of marine mammal science, it hasn't really always been like a straightforward path. And I kind of I like to talk about that, because I don't want people to ever get disheartened when you have to take some time away from doing the thing that you really want to do doesn't mean that you're not going to get back into the field, you know, it's so highly competitive. But I did my undergrad in biology in the centre of London. And I can probably count on one hand the number of lectures that we actually had that even mentioned the ocean. (laughs) Um, And maybe it was that that kind of led left me with a like a desire to to find out more um but also kind of during this time I did some voluntary placements trying to gain my first kind of research experience doing dolphin surveys actually in Cardigan Bay where I now work so um I think all of this kind of led me to want to pursue a career in uh marine mammal research so I did my master's at the University of St Andrews after taking a year out and just working whatever jobs I could find um and during that master's course actually we had a class or several classes on bioacoustics which is basically um using (laughs) using sound and understanding sound in order to inform about the biology of species And really, I think I was just captivated by kind of the complexity of the methods. And it's an area where both the software and sort of the technological hardware side of things is always evolving. It's quite challenging in that way because we're talking about like huge volumes of data and sometimes quite complicated like fieldwork. And I really enjoyed that and seeing actually how much we can learn about an animal's biology, like simply by listening in to them. And so that kind of led me to um, wanting to use acoustics in the next stage of my career. And after, again, some time away, I did a research assistant placement at the University of St. Andrews, um, the Sea Mammal Research Unit. And In that role, I was using um, acoustics, so we instrumented tidal turbine, which I should explain a bit more about what that is, Um, but we were basically trying to study porpoise behaviour using acoustics, and I was in that role for a few years before doing my PhD, uh, which is what I'm up to now, and I think having used acoustics for quite like an applied conservation question. I was also intrigued to get some experience learning a little bit more about animal behavior and communication in general. And so this PhD, which was exploring aspects of their voc- of dolphin vocal behavior, was really interesting to me. And that's what brought me to the University of Bristol and what I'm doing now. 
I like shedding light on the fact that it's not always a direct path from point A to point B to point C. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I always want to tell people not to get disheartened. I'm sure there were times where I certainly felt um, a little bit knocked. And, you know, everyone um, in research and in academia faces rejection sometimes. And, you know, we've applied for projects and nothing comes of it. And I guess I want to say to to stick with it and actually having some time out between, particularly between my master's and my PhD and doing that research assistant role was the best thing for me. And I think I went into the PhD with a lot more confidence and experience, particularly when it comes to quantitative analysis and coding and things like that. So yeah, use whatever time you have out between like your major goalposts. Um, to gain skills really is, uh, would be my advice to anyone. Totally. And there's never time wasted because, you know, if you had done that research position and found out, you know, I'm actually not interested in this, then you're not stuck. You haven't put yourself into this PhD and moved that, like move forward with it. Exactly. Yeah. I think any way that you can kind of refine what your research interests are, pick up more skills, make new contacts, it's the best thing for your career overall. And going into a PhD is kind of not a lighthearted endeavour, you know, you're committing four years to what in the grand scheme of things, sorry, four years in the UK at least, mm-hmm. um, to what in the grand scheme of things is quite a niche subject area. And so the more confident you can be that this is something that you're really passionate about, the better position you'll be in um, to get you through that PhD. Especially, you know, as a PhD candidate and to say like, this is, it was roundabout way. Exactly. Yeah, roundabout way, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. (laughs) Thanks so much for tuning in. Make sure you hit follow wherever you listen to your podcast and on social media. You can also leave a rating on the podcast to help it reach more people. I will see you next week.